Welcome back to another episode. I am here at TurboLift, which is a company that is based around building custom helicopters and upgrading helicopters to make them the fastest, the safest, and the best they could be. Uh, I am here with Jeremy Prashad. Uh, we just got, I just got a tour around this, around a few of his warehouses and this place. Uh, one of the warehouses has helicopters that are being repaired right now. This one that we're in right now stores a lot of really expensive parts for those helicopters that are all certified, that goes through a uh, certifying process. I'd love to ask Jeremy about all that. And yeah, so we'll begin here. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks it for having me. It is a pleasure. Uh, could you explain a bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now and what it took you? Just a short yeah, little recap. Yeah, for sure. Um, got into the industry probably about 2005. I uh, knew that I wanted to get into aviation by the time I was 12. I already knew uh, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. I didn't know uh, exactly what in aviation I was going to get into, whether it was going to be large jets or whether it was going to be helicopters at the time. But I uh, really had my direction pretty young on which way I was going. Uh, it just took a matter of time when I got to school to figure it out. And at about 2005, I started going down this path of, of being in helicopters uh, in itself. It took about uh, 15 years of working at a company and exploring a lot of Canada and the U.S. and around the world and seeing a lot of sites, going through a lot of things and uh, taking care of a lot of aircraft, um, helicopters, and to get me to the point where I kind of am today um, at uh, having TurboLift here with a, with a great team of people. Who was your greatest push? Who pushed you into being in this industry? Why this industry? Uh, who pushed me? Uh, wasn't too much of a push. Uh, I knew already that I was getting into this industry um, just seeing aircraft and being able to experience it. I would say the biggest uh, push that I had uh, was definitely my mother, for sure. She was a, was a driving force. Uh, she was a force in itself. And to definitely um, do the best I can and work the hardest I could. So I would say it was definitely definitely her that, that mm -hmm. did that. And... Uh, parents definitely put in a good work ethic. It uh, took some time and uh, some force some, and uh, definitely got me to the point where I was able to be called a reliable and an asset for, for a company or anyone that had me. So I would say that was, that was it. And then there was definitely mentors along the way um, throughout my life that uh, were always there when I was stuck or needed advice. Uh, on anything and I think I think that's important for for anyone going down life's path is to have those people there uh, but there's definitely a few along the way and some that are here today that I still go to and mm -hmm. uh, still ask the the tough questions or the things I need more experience on for sure you previously mentioned that you and your family were from Fiji back then you mentioned that your father was a Macintosh. Had Macintosh expert. Technician, yeah. Technician, right? Yeah. And then when he came here, all everything that he studied, all his uh, his his jobs and everything, he kinda lost and he had to start from scratch here. Yeah, that's correct. So 
he was a Macintosh technician. He had originally trained out of Australia, London, and out of Paris as well. And all those qualifications were not recognized when we when we came to Canada. So we were sponsored by his sister, and we lived in their basement when we first moved here. But uh, yeah, didn't recognize any of his qualifications. So he left the South Pacific uh, University, and basically we started to deliver newspapers. He did. Uh, when we first arrived here for first job and then he got into a company called Island Paper Mill which he worked there for for 15 years until it shut down and then uh, went to Simon Fraser University but uh, yeah you know I guess at some point there as as a parent you look for a better life for for your kids and you right. think that the better life for your kids is is not sometimes in the particular country that you're in at the time um, just for for opportunity for opportunities and and for advancement. So, parents make that decision and that sacrifice, right? Right. And so, it's the value, I guess, that what you do with it was a was a bit of what I took too. As CEO of TurboLift, how do you ensure that it stays in the forefront of technology and innovation? Yeah, I guess in in helicopters or in aviation in general that's always a tough tough question um, I think we we chatted about it a little bit is everyone loves uh, and expects a result from aviation so you get on a plane you get on an aircraft go flying there's a level of expectation that someone has is that they're gonna get there because you're not pulling over to the side of the road right? right so right so based on that that's based on um, results continual results of good results right and so to change something you not don't necessarily have the same or predictable results um, as you would uh, as something that's been tested so understanding that aviation doesn't move as fast as all other industries around uh, you definitely have to recognize uh, that and mm -hmm. work within the means that aviation can move fast so how do we stay with technology well for some of it is moving away from paper and moving to online systems. Right. Aviation's been very paper-based, heavily paper-based, but uh, going to a paperless system, likewise, uh, some of the crating system that we've showed you as well are around the, uh, the shop here, um, is trying to move away from using wood products throughout uh, the industry or cardboard to ship inventory that's in excess of a million dollars uh, with proper tracking, uh, proper G-force loads, understanding uh, what happens uh, to, to these parts as they're traveling along or being shipped. So where can we work? Do we provide innovation? We provide innovation in, um, basically in areas that do not disturb the flight characteristics of an aircraft. Uh, but aviation is moving along. Uh, it is evolving in regards to its technology but it's probably not as fast as everyone thinks it's supposed to be um, but for, for mm -hmm. good reason on some of it. Now when you when we went uh, around with the tour uh, you showed me some of the boxes that would uh, hold helicopter engines and these boxes I mean I, n I never thought that's how uh, engines would be transported these boxes are have really thick uh, plastic you mentioned they have tracking devices in them. 
and all of that. That is, in my opinion, that's pretty. That's pretty. Yeah. So that's that's definitely something that we're trying to get ahead of. I mean, if you if you go look in inventory and stuff, there's a lot of wooden crates around, right? Um, but it's not necessarily just wooden crates. It's the excess amount of wooden crates that we create. So. Our, our next push from tracking is to running a share system is where how do we share these boxes how do we produce less boxes because you can imagine an engine ships to, to someone when they buy it or a, or a part they purchase it they never use that box again right so it's sitting in a shelf somewhere just not being used or it's going to the recyclers or not going to the recyclers it's getting done so how do we create a shared box system um, where that inventory can be moved around and be repurposed or reused is, is a big focus uh, for us getting to the next stage of, of innovation in some of these as well. So it's, uh, it's those are the things we're trying to affect is things that are within our control and, and something that's uh, tangible for the industry to understand. You've previously worked at Heli Products for 13 years. It was also a, you worked as a mechanical engineer and then you went to a business consultant, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, I was a started out as an apprentice there, um, and then moved as time goes on. Um, we get a license, and we're called aircraft maintenance engineers. My classification is as an M1 mechanic. Mm -hmm. um, so once you get that, uh, you um, have the ability to sign aircraft out, but you do also require under that company to have. Uh, an approval, right? So my approval was under to sign out aircraft AS350s. Uh, but yeah, as as time went on, um, I knew that I had some business savvy. Uh, but the biggest thing was just learning and working, right? Being able to learn, pick things up, and repeat it over and over again. Um, and I think the repetition um, is not just something that. If you can have consistency, but but helps helps the business side because you learn through that reputation, uh, reputation, but repetition um, mm -hmm. in business and able to get you know safe outcomes and mitigate risk as well. Um, but yeah, just moved up into more of a business role for sure. As we walked into one of your warehouses, uh, there were a bunch of little components that would be needed to. Um, construct a helicopter from my understanding and those little components you mentioned that they need to be certified and that's why these little hinges or these little uh, spherical shapes go upwards of a few hundred to a few thousand dollars each piece could you talk a little bit about the certification process and why why, why are they so expensive yeah for sure um, a lot of it has to come down to the testing and the process of testing and continual maintaining of these parts, not just by the maintainer, but by the OEM, so the manufacturer of it. So Airbus Helicopters for this particular case, they have to continue to maintain, um, continue to keep up with the technical records for us to be able to maintain the aircraft. So the process of having and being able to prove all the testing and not just the testing, but the ability that that part can continue to operate on an aircraft um, requires us to denote that on forms, right? And so a lot of the time when we talk about certification, we're talking about a paper, piece of paper that hangs off a part to say that this part is serviceable 
and has been inspected by someone that has the proper authority and can be installed onto an aircraft. So for that declaration to happen, you need a person that knows what they're doing, mm -hmm. is certified, and also has the correct manuals, trained by the factory, right, and has experience in you know levels of that company that they're certifying parts. So there's there's a lot of things that have to happen to be able to declare that that part is capable of installing on an aircraft and serviceable. So all that encompasses into time, effort, and um, the OEM maintaining our manuals. So the cost of this is reflective of that. And then also on raw material and everything else that goes with it, um, the construction mm -hmm. of it. You can imagine that some of these aviation things, especially on a turbine engine, uh, uses some pretty intricate um, machining tools to be able to produce turbines. Uh, to be able to test them to make sure that they function, that they work, that they're going to last. Um, so there's a lot of that that goes into it. And the quantity is quite low. So when you talk about producing any other product other than that, you can imagine building Toyota Corollas or Teslas. Their volume per month is quite excessive. When we're talking about these aircraft, uh, we're talking about 167 to 300 of these aircraft being built a year. So that's not very many right, mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things. Um, so to produce that many, the effort is so high to be able to make these parts. Um, so the cost, cost is driven up because the quantity is not there either compared to car manufacturing or any other thing that has a high volume. Mm -hmm. How big would the price difference be if they weren't certified? Or is it legal to sell uncertified products? Mm, yeah, no. I mean, parts have to... Parts can be sold off an aircraft um, in what we call an as-removed condition, um, but you know, typically people that are buying want to know that the part itself is functional, right? That it works, that it meets the Airbus manuals. So the intent for someone to purchase it more than likely is is not good as an as-removed part. Um, but if someone is buying something in an as-removed condition it's up to them to determine the serviceability of that part. Um, how many times do we see that? We don't see that very often, is that most people want it to go through the process of a maintenance facility uh, to certify the part. Mm -hmm. If we don't mind, we'll step back a bit into your uh, earlier life and what you, uh, what you studied in university and high school. So let's begin with university first. Uh, what courses did you take in university to help you to get into your position, which you are now? Yeah, so university wasn't university. I actually went to um, what most people see as a college, um, a technical college. So BCIT, um, which is a local college around here. And I knew the program. You know, I applied for the program actually right in grade 12. And... Uh, knew that that's what I wanted to get into, knew that I had to write an English competency because I hadn't finished English just yet. So I wrote the test and was able to get accepted into the course, but there was a two-year wait list on there, on there. and the two-year wait list uh, kind of quickly shrank when I got out of school, actually became only six months, and uh, entered 
entered school six months out after I graduated at grade 12. Um, and then, yeah, started school. It was an afternoon program and basically did that for 16, 18 months with PCIT. And uh, actually got out of school a bit earlier. Uh, had a letter because I had already had a had completed most of the course and I had a letter from a previous employer to go to work right away. So the school accepted it as my last credits for, for the course. And uh, and yeah, went straight to work actually. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, was pretty quick, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Is from the time I was in grade 12, uh, finishing grade 12, so probably around 2000, four-ish I was basically out of coming out of school um, 2006 and uh, getting right to work started working on a helicopter almost within two or three days I was already on a helicopter um, but yeah it was the course itself um, I would say was a mix so you get a mix of fixed wings uh, aircraft and rotorcraft um, there's a small portion of it, but uh, yeah, just learnt learnt a lot. Had a lot of mechanical mm -hmm. time myself in working on cars, a lot of cars, fixing things. Um, so the mechanical aptitude, at least for me, was was there. And troubleshooting and problem solving, I enjoyed. So it was. I found it um, educational, but also at the same time was able to understand the curriculum and and uh, get through it so so to you college was wasn't a question uh, in your family were they pushing for you to go to college or university or did they not really no I didn't I think the one thing that I was told uh, by my parents right is to make sure you have a good education um, that was number one did they push me to go to university did they push me to go no there was no no push to to go into it uh, or any particular course. They didn't ask me to be a lawyer, a doctor, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to know um, that uh, there was a plan, a plan in place for me to to get a get a higher education and uh, go from there. Mm -hmm. How was uh, high school for you? Was it challenging? Uh, did you have many friends? How, how how was the high school experience? Yeah, high school for me, high school was good. Um, high school basically had good friends in high school, um, enjoyed high school, made uh, made a lot of good um, good friends out there. Um, I think for the most part, a lot of it, I also kind of buckled down as well uh, based on my my family needs as well so you know probably getting closer to the end of my high school time um my my mom had cancer right so a lot of that time that i had with friends in the kind of two years between grade 11 actually end of grade 10 um i started to retract a bit and um, work at home more stay at home more um, you know, it was spending more time at home. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of growing up fast kind of things that, that, that went along there uh, with that. And uh, yeah, I think, I think by the end of it, I was pretty much 
kind of distance and knew that I had a direction and had to grow up pretty fast at the end of it. Um, so yeah, there was, I guess the first bit was, was good and the, the last bit, all I knew is what I knew and I had to be home at a certain time and had to do certain things when I, by the time I got home. Right. So it was, uh, it was around our family and making it work. Did your high school offer any special courses that weren't uh, the core courses like math, science, PE? Any special ones that you decided to take? For or sure. Yeah? Yeah, so uh, we had a good tech um, section to it. So we had mechanics and we had a drag race team, uh, which I was on. Um, we had drafting, we had woodworking, we had electronics. I took all of them. I basically took every single one. Um, enjoyed every single one too. Loved working with wood, loved the drafting. Um, mechanics, really liked the mechanics side of things. Uh, felt like I excelled, I excelled. Mm -hmm. uh, graduated actually with honors in the mechanics course. I actually got a job from it. I was working part-time at Mazda uh, down at Boundary Bay at Wolf Mazda. Um, had a good relationship with the mechanic uh, instructor there. So yeah, it was, I think um, there was a lot of programs there allowed me to excel and to, to take different opportunities within at least the, the, the tech side and uh, mechanics side. So you're a big advocate for uh, electives and different courses to get kids to experience everything that there Absolutely. is out there? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's exposure to it, right? You don't know what you don't know. Right. Right. So right. that's, I think that's the biggest thing is um, it's hard to make a decision, you know, right after school. I mean, how do you make a decision when you don't know really what you want? So being able to explore the surroundings of what's available for you, for you, something that you want to do day in and day out, I think it's good. Um, some of the things that, that get tough is working through consistency in a path that you take it's it's not always good right even for helicopters even for mechanics whatever you do right there's there's good days and there's bad days and i think you have to learn how to get through them and understand that you're learning right at the same time you don't know everything so you're gonna have to learn it and sometimes you learn it the harder way uh, than than expected so those courses are there for that too right mm -hmm. you don't know but those courses allow that exposure to happen and I and I'm a big advocate for them big advocate for for providing that at the high school level absolutely mm -hmm. what was your least favorite course and the course that didn't help you in your career path at all so I'll answer that in two parts the least favorite one I had was English but it wasn't the one that didn't help me I did need it I did need English in a bad way and I still suffer with it today um, just didn't pay attention to it, didn't like it, had no interest in it, and I mm -hmm. did poorly. I did poorly in it. Um, and yeah, just just didn't do well. Just didn't do well in it, didn't understand the need for it, didn't us, and it, it, it was poor. And uh, even today, I, I really suffer with, um, with um, not being able to spend the time and effort into working through English. I mean, I came, when I came from Fiji, I was an ESL for a very much extended period of time. Um, and I think that started from elementary school. I just had no interest in it. And uh, I'm, you know, you look back and those, some of those things that you're a little bit disappointed 
that you didn't uh, spend a little more time with. Uh, courses that I think had no value, um, to me, I, I don't know. I, I, that's a tougher one. I'm not, I'm not sure which one didn't have too much value. I mean, all of them, if I had to pick a certain uh, part, uh, they, they, they had some value to it. Uh, do I use everything that each course taught, like calculus or anything like that? I mean, I know I don't, I don't use those things today. But did those things challenge me to be able to learn something and explore something? Yeah, absolutely. So is that, is that a learned thing now? I think that's something that helps you learn that you might not understand and know everything, but uh, there's ways to learn and study and, and comprehend things. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what course mm -hmm. wasn't good for me. But, uh, yeah. And all these classes that you might not need, they keep your brain working, keep your brain developing. So that's a, that's a plus side. Yeah, that's yeah, and that's how I'd, I'd look at it for sure. If you were to go back in time, what was one thing that you regret that you'd love to change? Um, a decision that you made, something that is, you look back now and you realize it was stupid that I did this. Oh, I mean, just tons, tons. I mean, that list is pretty long. Right? <laughs> well, there's those yeah. little things that like, I don't know, drinking with friends or whatnot, but some uh, career wise. Yeah. Career wise. Um, uh, I don't know. Cause I'm still going through my career. I mean, is there bad decisions? Yes. There's bad decisions along the way. Do you learn from those decisions? Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing in aviation that you're taught very clearly is there's something called human factors and the human factors of it are the things that affect an individual continually and all the time. And to accept that there will be human factors and you have to put the right um, things to prevent those things from happening in place. Um, whether you become a complacent person, you know that you're tired, fatigued. Um, I, I think those are the things that would, would help us. And I wish probably more so is that I probably would have spent a little more time in recognizing some more of those human factors that would have come along and you know in my career and mm -hmm. affected some of the decision makings that I've made in the past um, that affected either equipment or myself right um, and that was from a lack of recognition and inexperience that those things can affect and I think when you're younger you think you're pretty invisible to a lot of things and a lot of things don't affect you but I think if you take what at least aviation teaches you on human factors i think you start to humble yourself a little bit and recognize that you're you're built to fail in a lot of aspects um, so you got to have to have the right tools and want to learn and understand that and then move forward so i, I guess I've spent a little more time with that i guess mm -hmm. would have helped me prevent a lot of things um, yeah and recognize that's something that affects us right being the CEO of TurboLift, pretty big company. Um, well, not that big. <laughs> okay, well, how, wait, how many of these types of companies are out there? Um, so there's probably in the area around here, um, those that are working within um, the Airbus as dedicated as, as we are. Mm -hmm. It's probably about three, three around here. Guys that are more generalist um, on it in this area here. I'd say probably about 10. Mm -hmm. um, so we would say that we're more dedicated to one type, one model. So we stayed to the specialist of the Airbus AS350 uh, product line. Um, 
and mm -hmm. we've, we've stuck that way and since inception. Um, so let's continue to do that today. Is, 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 is this kind of a small, um, how should I call this? Like a, a small field that not a lot of people go into or is this a pretty, like would you say those three 10 companies, is, it, is, that, is that like enough? or not enough or what do you think yeah there's a lack there's a lack. lack i mean i think um you know i was mentioning to you that while we we're walking was that aviation is in a in a resource deficit in regards to individuals in the industry um, you look at the shortage of pilots you look at the shortage of mechanics um, we are really hitting um, a time where people are looking to air travel, people are looking to move equipment faster, people are moving cargo by air. There's a lot of decisions and things that require aircraft to be continually functional. Well, the industry can't, with the available people, can't support that. So we're seeing a lot of aircraft that are sitting based on that uh, because there's just not enough people to fly, not enough mm -hmm. people to maintain. So we need more people than we ever did in the past I see and uh, yeah I think we're gonna run into that as we see other trades you know I think what we see is a lot of what we do today is very computer-based right whereas what we do on aircraft is you know very tangible something you touch with your hands it has to function right we can't problem-solve it all the way through a computer um, so for individuals that are being exposed to that every single day, um, you know that's that's tough to tell them that. Well, we problem solve with our hands and our minds, right? And and uh, working through it that way. Mm -hmm. So we we're, we're actively trying to expose more individuals, younger individuals, to that is a pathway, and there is a hand-eye coordination thing that you could do. In, in aviation, um, that could be rewarding for some, right? Not for everyone, right, but right. for some. In my classroom, I see a lot of uh, kids now being more lazier than they were. I assume when you were in school, they were more hardworking than they are now. Uh, in, or I'm not speaking for all, <laughs> I'm speaking for some. Um, I mean, when I, when I go to class, sometimes half the class not there, they're either skipping or they're really late. What do you what do you, what do you think about this lack of going to school? Is this is this something we should watch out for, or is this something that? Yeah, I I don't know if it's a tough gauge right now. I think a lot of people have just come over the pandemic here. A lot of them have been gone from online to coming back to school, so there's probably some challenges there that the mm -hmm. that the school is facing today is probably that change up that's happening there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, do we see, you know, laziness? I think laziness has been around for a long time. It's been, it's been everywhere. Uh, I think it's in every, every generation. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing is it's easier, it's easier to do things, right? It's much easier to access things. Access has never been what it used to be. So if you could discuss the word of access, do kids have access to more things and at their fingertips? Did it take less effort to get to that access? Absolutely, right? Kids have that. Uh, when you try getting into industries that don't give you access right away, so meaning in aviation, how fast are you gonna move up into aviation and get yourself and be a licensed person 
not quick, right? You're going to go to school. You're probably going to put four years in, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a span of time that you have to be consistent and learn consistency and then get to a point where that you're going to eventually be a licensed individual and then you're being asked to be consistent because you might have an apprentice or you might be training someone or whatever that might be. So it doesn't let you have an off day, right? You don't have much room to have that much air. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uncomfortable for some. Right. Yeah. Some people don't like that accountability and responsibility. So what category does that put that person in? I don't know. Some people might call it laziness. Some people might just call it whatever it is, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think, I think from asking an individual that's capable and available to have something accessible quicker, I right. think is where we're running the risk is that some of the things we do are just not quick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, that's, that's, that's where I, at least I see it is that the speed of things in aviation are not as fast as what people have, you know? Think about technology on your hand tips, right? On the phone, right? You can get answers, chat GPT. Right. You can get answers and things just like that. Now to ask chat GPT to fix that helicopter sitting on the ramp there that broke down. I mean, they're not, it's not gonna be able to do it today. It might be able to do it one day, mm-hmm. um, but it needs something tangible to go to it, change the part, fix the thing, troubleshoot it and to get it done, right? So the individuals that are going to want to make the decision to do those things are the individuals we want to see and also are the individuals you're probably um, looking as people that are high achievers that are are, are looking and pushing themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Especially in helicopters, I think. Helicopters for sure. Uh, More than likely, there's sometimes only one or two people working on it. Right? So the only driving force for someone to get that done as an individual is certain pressures. The aircraft's got to fly so it makes money. Pilot's going to be there in the morning or whatever the situation might be. There's pressure. So you in itself have to put pressures on yourself to get something done. You don't get the, you don't get the opportunity to say, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it the next day. It's because right. the aircraft's got to go flying and you're the only guy. Right? You're the person that has to get it out. So you're being pushed by just the general logistics and scheduling of it to to go flying and work so it can pay bills so time is a very important uh thing for you i'd say how do you how do you manage your time and do you value time probably do but yeah no um i was terrible before on time management i can tell you that um compared to where i am today um and in regards to time management is I just didn't have the right tools to time manage myself as well as I do today. I've learned a lot along the way. Um, learned where my strengths are, where my weaknesses are. Um, so time management means a lot of things. It's understanding what the, uh, uh, basically the objective is mm-hmm. and breaking the objective out into doable pieces and asking for help when help is needed too. So. Yeah, I, I would say time management absolutely is a re- requirement for aviation. Um, nobody likes to leave the gate in the airline five minutes late. People are upset when you're five minutes late and you're leaving the gate or you're arriving an hour late at the next spot and you're going to miss it. So there's no difference in helicopters. 
right? Mm -hmm. When helicopters drop people off in remote locations, they expect you to pick them up at the certain time or right. be able to pick them up. There's, it's just a reliability thing. You got to be there because they're in the middle of nowhere, right? So uh, that trickle effect comes down to maintenance. Maintenance has got to be able to keep that aircraft going so it can meet those obligations as mm -hmm. well. So, yeah, uh, I think everyone can do a little better in time management and same for me. Right. I'm still working on it, but a lot better than when I was in the past. So we have a few minutes left here, uh, so I'll finish up with a few more questions. Sure. Um, you touched upon AI. Um, what do you think about AI in schools and what AI, ChatGPT, and all these different AIs have done? Uh, do you support this or do you see mostly cons in this? Yeah, I, I think it's cool. I think, uh, yeah, I think it works. It works well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's got its limitations. I mean, I, I how much can I really do with it? Uh, myself, not much. I mean, it can help me probably in a, in a few aspects of what we're doing. But, you know, AI, yeah, I mean, yeah, really, go for it. I right. mean, it's, it's great if it gets to a point where it, it helps things, it relieves things. Um, that's great. Um, but I, I, at the end of the day, there's, it's, it's not the solution. It's not the global solution, right? It's not the global solution right. for everything that's going on. Right. I, it's still still coming down to people at the end of the day. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I haven't interacted a lot by myself on 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 AI, so I don't have a huge opinion on it. So mm -hmm. take take my opinion with a grain of salt on that. Okay. One. Yeah. Could you walk us through uh, quickly your process of because I read online that you bought uh, Blue Box. Or is that a yeah yeah? And then you from Heli products, yeah. and then you integrated it into what you do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, just walk yeah. us through a little bit. Yeah, so I always was, was trying to um, get into business, get uh, business uh, in any you know basically in any business, whether it was trying to sell cars as a kid, whether it was uh, fixing things and selling it or building something to sell it. I uh, always enjoyed that and I was looking to get into aviation business. I mean, I didn't didn't have the money to be able to get and buy a helicopter and, and go right. from there square one. So uh, what I really liked was the manufacturing portion of business too. You build something, you build something cool, it's innovative and you tell people about it and you show them how innovative it is and you use it. and. Um, People catch on to it and they and they buy the product because they like the product, mm -hmm. and I felt that Blue Box was that product as I well, see. and uh, so I had a keen keen eye for it and uh, I purchased that business, and that's what kind of started TurboLift out was was buying that product and and it continued to expand it onto different lines. Uh, it only had a few lines itself, line items, and then started to get engines, started to get bigger items in there, tracking units and continued to where the point right now is developing the vending machine right now um, remote vending machine system mm -hmm. for uh, aircraft parts and tooling uh, for remote locations so I see well uh, last question here what is your favorite book and your favorite podcast uh, that you think might be beneficial for other students or you just like reading or listening to yeah I mean I don't uh, Podcast, 
not uh don't really have one. not really fair yeah, enough yeah. yeah i think uh a lot of uh, yeah a lot of the stuff that i listen to for the most part you know it's more collecting just uh just knowledge and mm -hmm. things like that um so just learning things uh, at the end of the day uh listening to opinions and stuff like that i, I don't i don't know if i spend that much time uh least right, listening right, to right. opinions I have a hard time with those things Fair uh, but i i would say that uh, podcast wise uh, probably not much there for me mm -hmm. but uh, definitely anything that has to do with just learning about different things right could be anywhere from learning about animals to to learning about how a car is built mm -hmm. uh, on the tesla production line any or, books in specific uh specifically i don't know there's not a huge uh, selection of uh, things that are out there that I read. Just like I said, it's bad at English. Okay. Yeah. I see. And then I could see you launch your own uh, clothing. Yeah, just a turbo lift yeah. brand. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's more so um, a lot of our guys here, especially Nick. He's had a lot of uh, time in designing and things like mm -hmm. that, but more retro stuff. But yes, it's a it's a good swag to give away at conventions. I see. Things like that. So. Well, awesome. Thank you very much for sitting down with me. It was an honor getting a tour of this place and talking to you, yeah. CEO of TurboLift. Thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.